If you have a Bible or a device that you use, go ahead and turn to Psalm 24. Psalm 24 is going to be a really helpful passage for us today as we've been walking through our work in the Psalms um, in our series called Anthem and how the Psalms actually help us connect to the Lord emotionally and imaginatively. It doesn't just download a bunch of information into us on who God is and who we are, but actually connects us to him viscerally. And the Psalms are very good at that. And this one particularly well for a certain kind of people. I think it's going to be helpful for us today. So I'm going to read all the way through it because it's only 10 verses. And then we will kind of drill down on a couple key points as, as we move through this. This is the word of the Lord for us today. A psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. And then as Charlie had just read earlier, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. You know, in 2015, I was in this trail race and Big South Fork, no, forgive me, Big Ridge, very big difference there, Big Ridge State Park. And it wasn't a super long race, but it was known for its climbing. It was difficult, a lot of ascent, a lot of difficult climbs. In fact, there was one single climb there that carried this reputation. It was the only reason I signed up for the race. It lived up to the reputation it had, more of a wall than a hill, um, kind of reduced me just down to scrambling and grabbing anything that wasn't nailed down. I did so poor on this particular climb that I returned several years later when I was in much better shape to get a little bit of revenge. But there was no revenge to be had. I'm never doing this race again. Um, just because the energy spent is very disproportionate to the amount of ground you cover. I'm taking 10 steps and yet I'm going backwards with the mud and the leaves and the dirt and the pitch on this hill. There was no moving forward. It felt like I was on a treadmill, to be very honest. By the time I made it to the top of this hill, my heart rate was so high, both of my contact lenses popped out of my head. That's how high. I've never recorded it that high since I moved to Knoxville, Tennessee. So I dropped down on my hands and knees, and I'm looking through the dirt and the mud for my contact lenses because that's how blind I am while guys are running by me, not being helpful. So I find one of them, one of them, which was good enough for me, throw it into my mouth to clean it off, right, because I didn't hate myself enough. I needed to stick a dirty contact lens right back in my eye and just kind of ran like this for the next five or six miles just to get to the truck. Um, I felt a little bit like that mythological Greek king Sisyphus. The myth is is that he was punished to push a boulder up a hill. And as soon as he would get to the top or close to it, the boulder would roll right back down the hill. He'd go down, grab the boulder, and push it right back up the top over and over again for eternity, spending much more time at the bottom of the hill than at the top. The reason I tell stories like this is because that's how I see religion. Religion is like this. 
Now, when I use the word religion, I'm not speaking puritanically of the word. The Puritans would write of religion interchangeably with something like Christianity. It wouldn't have a a connotation that was kind of uh, maybe darker. But I'm going to use religion in the way that our world defines it today, which is virtually a system of man-made ladders or hills to get close to God. Anything that we can climb. Buddhism. Islam, Mormonism, even a lot of the Christian church will just reduce you and me to sinners scrambling to get up the hill of God, just to get him to smile at us, just to spend some time with him. So much climbing, so much striving, so little time at the top, so much time at the bottom. You know, before the gospel changed me, I'd find passages like Psalm 24, what we just read, asking who can ascend the the hill of the Lord, and it was those with clean hands and a pure heart and a couple other things, and I would immediately execute Operation Clean Hands to do anything to clean my behavior up, maybe if it's perfecting regulations, checking whatever boxes I needed to do because I just wanted to be likable to God. I didn't want to just be loved by God. I wanted him to like me. I wanted him to smile at me. Maybe over time, if I climbed well enough, I could finally summit this hill and sojourn with God. Of course, I'd never be able to tell you what that felt like, right? Because some days I would feel clean, honestly. Some days I would get home at the end of the day and thought, you know what, I didn't blow it too bad today. I might have hit a couple foul balls, but over and above, I think I did a pretty good job today, right? But most of the time, I'm slipping backwards down the hill and slipping fast, exhausted, no joy, no security. Friends, let me tell you, this is not the gospel. It's not. It's not anything close to the gospel. But it's how I learned to view my orientation before God, right? That's how I grew. Maybe you did too. He was so far away. I just wanted to be clean, which means I had so much work to do. This is how a lot of people can see how they are spatially with God. Again, maybe you. If this is you, you must be exhausted. Some of you, you walked in here exhausted, climbing, scrambling, cleaning, behaving, just to be close to God. I'm sure you have good days. I'm sure you do. I'm sure you have really good days, but aren't most of your days just forgettable or even bad, right? And whenever you do see somebody across the room or across the street and they look like they enjoy Jesus, don't you just look at your hands and say, well, I've got a lot of cleaning to do. I've got a lot of work to do if I want to look like that. Maybe you come on a Sunday morning to something like this or at another church and you hope that the preacher on the stage is going to tell you something that will make you climb better, make you a better climber but then you quickly find out how fatigued and depressing it can be as even what that guy on stage told you to do is not working for you. All just so you can get God to smile at you. Listen, as a church, we've done a lot of things good and a lot of things not awesome. One of the things we've always set out to do as a church is never train better climbers. Never been the goal to just make you better at being religious, but rather to lead you to enjoy Jesus. But the big question is, is is it so wrong to grow in purity of heart, internal purity, or or to grow with purity of hands, external purity? Is that so bad? Not at all. It's it's actually a disciple's path to, to have purity in our lives, both inwardly and outwardly. There's nothing wrong with that. But why we pursue purity does matter. It does. I mean, this is what religion will tell you. Religion will tell you that your purity will bring you close to God. Your purity will. Christianity comes along with the gospel and says God's moving closer to you. He is pure to you. And your response to that is a joyful purity. 
But it's a response. It's an outworking of that. It's not an application to get God to like you. It's an outworking of the fact that he loves you. So this psalm, this is a psalm for the weary and the exhausted and those sick and tired of scrambling up the hill of God. David actually wrote this, as we saw, and he most likely wrote it whenever the Ark of the Covenant was being carried up the hill of Zion and placed in the tabernacle. They just retrieved it from the Philistines. If you wanted to read about that, that would be in 1 Chronicles 15 and 16. You have David and Israel recapturing the Ark that they had at one time and then lost, right? So they're ascending this hill of Zion with the ark. The ark, if you're not familiar with the Old Testament or the Bible, it's not real confusing. It's about this, it's about the size of a Yeti cooler, and it was full of things that were precious to God in his covenant with us. So like the Ten Commandments, uh, manna was in there. It was a very precious container, but the lid was gold and had two angels perched on top. So it was probably a little awkward to carry. They had to use golden poles just to carry it. They couldn't touch it because of how holy it was. But these angels would face each other, and then that space in between the angels, that's where God would appear and bring his presence. It was called the mercy seat. So when the presence of God would come, it would be right between those gold angels. It's interesting, really, when you think about it. Well, they had lost it, and now they got it back. Big day gives us a big song. Psalm 24. God's presence is back into camp with them, and David is rejoicing. Little piece of trivia here, which is interesting, is history shows us that during the exile, this is when Israel had been just taken away from their land, the Jewish tradition was to read this psalm every single Sunday, celebrating the first day of creation, making Psalm 24 one of the most outwardly rehearsed and read psalms in human history. Not the most, but it sits on the top shelf. Right? So let's walk through it just a couple verses at a time, and we will find Christ in this, and it won't take us long to find him. Verse 1, 24. He says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Okay, so the basic idea is that God is the creator and the owner of everything. Everything and everything inside everything. And some of the language here is actually borrowed from Genesis. You might have picked up on that. Genesis 1, stay where you're at in Psalms. Genesis 1, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. This we know. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. It's talking about the water. Over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Okay, this is interesting. Back with this group of people in this culture at this time, anytime you read sea or deep, it's supposed to render this idea of chaos and and danger in you because it's pretty chaotic out in the deep and it's pretty dangerous, right? If you've ever been out on a boat and you just look around, you're like, yeah, I'm really not in control anymore. This is chaotic and this is dangerous. It's supposed to do that, right? That's what's beautiful about the language being in Genesis because God brings land up to do what? To border and to tame the chaos of the deep. What the land does, in effect, is tells the water, you can go no further. We're bordering you here, which is a sign for you and me that even chaos cannot stand in the way of what God wants to do. He is creator. He is owner. He is master. And this is the cool part about it. We are his creation. He is creator, as he's making very clear here, and we are his creation. And that's what defines you. That actually is what you were designed to do. It is part of your purpose. This is what I mean. All things that are created 
reflect the glory and the capacity of their creator. So when you see a nice watch or a nice car or a nice house or something like that, and you're like, wow, that's, that's pretty nice. I really like that. It, that. That is a reflection of the capacity of the designer. So glorifying God is the purpose and the design of our lives. He is creator, we are creation. So just as we read in the Bible from time to time, you'll see how the rocks or the trees or the mountains or the oceans are applauding or are celebrating the glory of God. You and I are his pinnacle creation. And so with every fiber of our being, we reflect and worship God in all areas of life. Why? Because we are creation and he is creator. It's pretty simple, really, when you think about it. And when we do this, when we worship him with every fiber of our being in all areas of life, we are finally in context. We finally make sense, in other words. We're in context. In fact, we make the most sense when we are not the center of the universe, requiring everything to orbit us. We stop making sense when we demand that everything around us orbit us as we are owner and master over everything. This is important for us, right? It's important in a world like today where so much of our planet lives out of context. The further away we get from our design, the more we lack purpose. So that's the, that's the equation, out of context, out of purpose. It's an easy way to remember it. You see, this is the voice of our age. The voice of our age is that you are owner and you are master and everything really orbits you. It pulls us that direction. It advertises that for us, that you determine your own virtue. You determine your own morals. You determine your own reality. You determine your own sex. You determine your own future. You determine your own everything because you are in control, because you are master and you are owner. You see, what Christianity is, is it's a rebellion against that. It repositions us. And it brings us back into our best purpose and our best design, where we are finally, as I said, in context. And that's where we find our most meaning, friends. That's where laughter finally makes sense. That's where our ambitions and our strivings and our dreams finally make sense. That's where our pain and our suffering and our struggles are no longer without meaning. We're in context. This is why we see Paul tell the Roman church in Romans 11, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. To him be glory forever. To him be glory forever. It's part of our creative mandate. It's who we were designed to reflect with our lives. So, if all of that's true, and I've taken the long way around all of that to be very, very obvious with how true I really believe it is, the question is, is if the closer we get to God, the more we make sense, then how do we get close to a God like this? How do we get close to a God like this so that we really make sense? This is what it says in verse 3. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? Well, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. This is interesting because it's really gonna line up with another passage in Psalm 15. So I'm only flipping back like four pages and this one's only five verses, but I'm gonna read it to you because it sounds so strangely familiar right here, right? O Lord, David says, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly does what is right, 
speaks truth in his heart, does not slander with his tongue, does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest, who does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall not be moved. Listen, I don't know, between you and me, if these are the prerequisites to be close to God, I'm out. I'm out. I can't get there. <laughs> I was out quick in those two lists with clean hands and a pure heart. God knows I've tried with the strength of 10 Pharisees. I've tried. And yet my heart is not pure. Even if my hands were, even if I could make it through a day and go, you know what? I didn't misbehave. I didn't perform poorly. My heart will convict me. I thought something improper. Even if, my, even if I could pull that off for five minutes and have a pure heart, my affections would be disordered. You see, this is what Augustine would say way back in the third, or really the fourth century. Augustine would say, hey, listen, your primary misfire, it's not because you believe wrong things. It's actually not even that you do wrong things. Your primary misfire is that you love wrongly. You love wrongly, and that's why you believe and do wrong things. Friends, listen, I love the wrong things, or maybe the right things a little too much, or not enough. So my loves are disordered. My affections are out of array. And so it's very obvious to me through a list like this that my credentials simply will not carry me up the hill of God. It won't. I mean, who, who's does? Who's got a resume that can pull that off? Well, nobody. Not a single person. Psalm 14, verse 2 says this, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God, period, new sentence. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. What a condemning line. Not even one. But there is one. There is one. I mean, there's one. And that's what the gospel puts all of its weight upon. There is one person who can go up into the presence of God. And that's where we're going to find this in verse 7 of our passage. So go back, if you were with me in 15, and go back to 24. <clears throat> now this is an interesting passage. To read this right, you need to know that this is a dialogue. Okay, You have two priests talking to each other. You have the priest that's leading the ark up the hill, and then you have the priest that's guarding the gates. So you have two voices talking back and forth here. It's easy to miss. Voice number one, lift up your heads, O gates, which just means swing open, and be lifted, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Voice number two, who is this king of glory? Voice number one, the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Voice number two, who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. Voice number one says, he is the king of glory. So it's a liturgical back and forth. Just when we thought no one could summit, David announces a valiant warrior. It's God himself. It's actually God himself. It turns out God is the only one that it can ascend the, the holy hill and sojourn with God. Doesn't make any sense. When you just read it and say it out, like it makes no sense. When do we ever see God do something like this? And even if we did find something in the passages that show us God doing something like this, what does it matter for your Tuesday afternoon? 
Like, how do we apply it to today? Why, why would Psalm 24 even make any difference in our everyday life? Well, the gospel is where we see it. We see the story of God ascending the hill of Calvary, where he would be crucified. It's not going to be a hill of glory. It's a hill of villainy. It's not a hill that was seen as glorious like Zion in the midst of the city. It's one that was outside the city, reserved for the worst. And the presence of God would show up, but not between two golden angels. It'd be between two criminals on a cross. You see, the gospel declares Jesus as our warrior champion who summits the hill with clean hands, with a pure heart, and the gates swing open for him and they stay open for you. They stay open for you and me. But then why would God do this? Because it doesn't make any sense. Again, I mean, if God is just, this doesn't make any sense. And God has to be just or he's no God at all, legitimately. If he's not righteously just, he's no God at all. So God should have erased us, in other words. He should have grabbed the Etch-A-Sketch with both hands and shook as hard as he could and just started over because that would have been justice. That's why it says in Psalm 14, we have all turned aside. Well, why didn't he turn aside from us? Here's the answer. Because he loves you. Friend, listen, if you're in Christ right now, do you want to know why God loves you? Because he does. Just because he does. It's not because you bring anything to the table. You don't. You bring no merit to coax affection from him. He loves you because he does. And in loving rebels, in loving vandals and villains, it just glorifies him even more. It brings more of his glory out on display. That's what I love about this. His character is more richly shown. And as you see his character in more detail, it just glorifies him even more. He's not just the face of justice. He's also the face of grace. He's also the face of mercy. Yes, he's just. Penalties will be given appropriately, fully. And he's also merciful, not punishing. He's also graceful, giving favor despite us. This is what we see in the gospel. So we see this cool thing where God pronounces the penalty on you and me for basically being the center of our own universe, pretending that we are owner and master of everything. And for that, we are to receive death. And for that, we are to receive a permanent dislocation from God's affection. But what does Jesus do? He descends. He descends. He descends the holy hill and he comes down to you and me. This is what we celebrate in Christmas. It's the incarnation. It's him descending. And then what does he do? Well, he lives a great life with us, that's for sure. But then he ascends a hill where we will pin him up on a cross. And then he descends again into the grave, right? This is what we call Good Friday. <laughs> Goes into the grave. And then what does he do? He ascends out of the tomb by the power of God and the, and the Holy Spirit, that's, that's fascinating. And then after that, he will ascend again to the right hand of God. You see the series of descents and ascents in Jesus. When you match that up to a Psalm like 24 or Psalm 15, it crawls out of the page. And then it starts to make sense for our everyday. It starts to make sense. Because religion will tell you that the gates are going to close in your face and you will slip down that hill unless you figure out a way to get your hands clean and get your heart clean. Those doors don't stay open for you, friend. You're going to need to get better at climbing. You're going to have to. The gospel comes along and says the gates are already open because Jesus climbed the hill with his perfect heart and his perfect hands and his perfect life 
declared that they open, they open, and they stay open for you and for me. He made a way. So what's my response when I read a passage like this? For two weeks now, as I've been meditating on this, my response is just long, long live the king. Long live the king. I'm finally in context. My life finally makes sense. Friend, listen, if you're tired, consider how exhausted you are. Just consider it for a moment. And how willing you've been to just try to be perfect, to be close to God, just to get him to smile at you, just to get him to like you. How would it change your life to know that you were hidden inside of the life of our valiant warrior who went up and made a way for you? How would it change your life to know that it was his credentials that brought you into the presence of God, not yours? I mean, it changes everything, first of all. It changes everything. I mean, one of the things I thought about it, I found two hard applications that I think could be helpful for us in a passage like this. One is we could just finally be honest. It could bring a real guttural and real honesty to us. Listen, I've seen a lot. I've, I've been in the ministry for about, about 25 years now in various capacities. So I've seen trends come and go. Some of them steeper. Some of them just kind of were a fad. They weren't really a trend for very long at all. One trend I've seen increase and then spike upward like a hockey stick are people that are just saying, I'm done. I'm done with Christianity. I'm done with the Bible. I'm done with church. I'm done with Jesus. I'm done. I'm weary and I'm tired and I just don't want to do this anymore, Luke. Now that I'm seeing a lot, a whole lot. And this is what the church would call duns, those who are just done. But let me tell you why they're done. They're not done because they're sick and tired of the joyous freedom they find in Jesus. <laughs> they're done because they're sick and tired of climbing the hill. They found fatigue instead of Jesus. They're exhausted of finding this heaping pile of rules just to slide back down every single day. Right? I don't blame them. I don't blame them for being done with that. Not for one second. Our mission as a church is not to pitch a better way to climb a hill. Just a new way to be religious. Very much not interested in that. But we can be honest. Honest with ourselves, first of all. But also honest in how we are on mission to the people next to us. When you bump, and you will if you haven't already, when you bump into somebody that says, you know what, I'm done with this whole church thing, whole Bible thing, whole Sunday morning thing, whole community thing. Whole, I'm just done. I don't want to do all that hard stuff anymore. I don't want to follow all those rules anymore. You can honestly just say you shouldn't want to follow those rules anymore. You shouldn't even want to. You could finally take your resume and bury it. That list of credentials that you've been polishing, you can just leave it. Leave it at the door. Because God has come close to you. He is descended. He has come close to you. Christianity says no more climbing. So one of, the big, one of the big lightning words in the last maybe five years, possibly ten, maybe, is deconstruction. And deconstruction is predominantly what it sounds like it is. I mean, you deconstruct the car, you pull it down to its pieces. You deconstruct the meal, you pull it down to, a, to its components. So what people are doing with Christianity is they're deconstructing it, which means they're taking their doctrine and they're breaking their platform down plank by plank by plank, allegedly. And they're looking at it and they're saying, this I believe and this is why I believe it. This I got from my mom and dad and I'm going to put the screws to it a little bit and see if it's really true. This over here I picked up from my youth pastor, and I'm pretty sure it's heretical, but I don't know. So I'm going to look at it a little bit more. This over here, you know, and plank by plank by plank, they reevaluate, but you have to deconstruct to do that. Listen, 
I mean, honestly, the thought of doing that is very refreshing. Let me tell you what's boring. It's how destructive it is when people deconstruct and they never reconstruct into anything. They just deconstruct into an abyss in the name of honesty. In the name of honesty. Friends, they're not leaving the gospel. They're leaving religion. Let's face it. If you've really tasted the gospel, you've really appropriated it to your life, as you put your arms around it, what, what are you going to leave that? As Peter said, where are we going to go? You have the words of life. How can I just bounce from this? It's religion people are leaving. We can be honest. We are not recruiting climbers as we make disciples, but people who enjoy the one who climbed for us. We can be honest. I think probably even a bigger application is we can rest because there's a bright freedom in knowing that you can never lose your salvation. Man, I don't know about you. I remember, I remember the first, I remember the first day I realized that my salvation was secured and it was like weights flying off of me, like I could finally walk, like I could fly. I mean, there is so much power in the freedom of knowing that you can never lose your salvation. Friend, if you're in Christ, you will always be in Christ. The doors have swung open for someone, not you, but they stay open because he's loving. Think of it in the reverse. If it was your clean hands and it was your clean heart that brought you this close to God, then you were just one bad day away from losing it, aren't you? That was a torturous 15 years for me of just being one bad decision away from losing the affection of God. I might as well have been a Buddhist. It's closer to Buddhism than it is even Christianity. But friend, if you did not earn it, then you can't lose it. That's the beauty of salvation. This is why Paul says in Ephesians, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that nobody can boast. That's, that's what he's saying right there. And then Romans 8, 1, he says, for those of you who are in Christ, there is no condemnation. Effectively, punishment has been poured out in its fullest measure and not one drop is remaining for you. Discipline, sure. Punishment, none. None. Here's my caution, my asterisk here, right? Being in Christ does not look like remaining the center of your universe, Okay? Making an emotional decision when you were nine and then remaining the center of orbit for your life should not give you much security, friend. I have no problem, nor have I had problem over the years telling people I don't think they're saved. I've done it a lot. I get it. I can't ever know. I know what you're supposed to say that. It's not up to me. I know that, but I also don't have to pretend. I can also declare what's pretty obvious, right? And I know it sounds cold. Out of all the times I've done that, by the way, I've only had one person really flip out. Most of them, most, like 95% of the time, they're incredibly thankful because they've always wondered. That's a special hell to wonder if you are one decision away from being far from the presence of God for eternity. For somebody to just look them in the eye and say, listen, I would not put a paycheck on your salvation right now, and these are the five reasons why. I found things that they were thankful. I mean, it was like, almost like a load came off. At least now they know. Today, if you place your trust in Jesus to accomplish for you what you can never accomplish on your own, and if you trust your life to follow and enjoy Jesus in all areas of your life, you're fine. You're secure. You're secure for eternity. A life lived in this kind of security is full of adventure. You're playing with house money. 
full of adventure. See, there are hard applications for even a passage like this. We can find purpose in this life when we're in context. In Jesus, our lives finally make sense. You could finally be deeply known, right? One of the biggest songs to come out in the last year, it's not even a new song. Kate Bush came up with a song back in the 80s, the mid-80s, Running Up That Hill. It was on a show that everybody was watching at the time here recently. And, you know, I, I didn't even like the song back then. I don't like it much now. But one of, the, one of the things that was interesting in the song is a stanza that's repeated often is, and if I only could, I'd make a deal with God and I'd get him to swap our places. Now, what she's talking about is swapping the places with a guy, okay? Wanting to be truly known and understood and empathized with and him as well, that they would need to swap places. She would need to walk in his shoes and he would need to walk in her shoes. And then and only then could she be totally and deeply known. But friend, let me just tell you, to, tr- to, to truly be understood doesn't mean swapping places with another, but swapping places with God himself, which is the gospel story, is he came and he took a place that we were supposed to be standing in, and he swapped his righteousness for our unrighteousness. It is because of that that we are finally understood. It's because of that that we could finally understand each other, finally have a purpose, finally have this design, just finally known. So the place of repentance in this for you and me as we burn through this passage quickly, where are you religious? Where is it for you? I mean, the gospel makes disciples of Jesus to grow in their purity. As an outworking of the greater hill climber in Jesus. It's only religion that will make you a better hill climber, though. Listen, if you are a religious Christian and you're just scrambling scrambling, it's from a place of disbelief that God is actually sufficient in the work that he's done. You still think you've got to swing some doors open. You still think that Jesus has done some great things, but you still got some cleaning to do in order for him to like you, in order for him to see you and smile upon you. That's a place of repentance, friend. You're not a victim there. You're an aggressor. You're like me. We're villains in that, where we look at God and we say, your plan was good, but it's really not that great. That's why I'm left doing the things that I'm doing. That's why I'm so exhausted. That's why I'm so fatigued. It's a place of repentance. And I know there's people here and people even watching that are probably far from Christ. You struggle with a lot of this. You're you're learning. You hear a passage that makes you excited, and then you hear another passage that kind of ticks you off, and I get that. But let me ask you, where's your help coming from? You're not here because you had nothing to do on Sunday. Where did, where's your help come from? You need something, right? Psalm 121, the psalmist says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Master, owner, creator. He made heaven and earth. Friend, you've received no help from this world. None. And you know to gain ground and to climb an unclimbable hill has broken your soul in two. It's made you exhausted, rightfully so. So I beg you today to just trust, listen, I beg you today to trust Jesus as your replacement. Where you can walk as one saved, living an adventurous life, declaring along with me and millions of others, long live the king. And there's room for us to celebrate in a passage like this because Jesus doesn't just climb the hill of the cross and he doesn't just climb out of the tomb. 
But not too long after all of the gospel had happened, he ascends to the right hand of God into a better tabernacle, a better presence of God, a better place of worship, and we're going to follow him. We're going to follow him. And then our chorus joins the chorus that's been going on for eons. Long live the king. But until then, we enjoy and we trust the work of God for us in Jesus, not in order to find the presence of God, but because he has already come close to you and me. Amen.